Hello, everyone. I'm Brent Leonard, and welcome to the Lupus Ontario podcast. We have a very special guest joining us today. Dr. Tala Altel joins us to discuss lupus from the pediatric perspective. Dr. Altel has recently completed her pediatric rheumatology fellowship at the Hospital for Sick Children, Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto. Her clinical research interests focus on cognitive impairment, brain fog, as well as mental health screening and interventions. Dr. Altel is also the recipient of the 2021-2022 Jeff Carr Fellowship awarded by Lupus Ontario to further research and practice in the area of lupus. Dr. Altel, thank you so much for joining me today. Brent, thank you so much for having me and uh, thank you for that kind introduction. To get things started for everyone, could you give us a bit of background about yourself, such as perhaps where you studied medicine, what might have propelled you toward pediatric rheumatology and more specifically lupus, and where you practice currently today? For sure. So just a bit of background. I originally grew up in Toronto, and then I later completed my medical degree as well as pediatrics training at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon. So that's where I'm originally from. While I was there, I, you know, there are a couple of things that propelled me towards pediatric rheumatology. One was that there were substantial numbers of children and adolescents with rheumatic diseases, so lupus, arthritis, different diseases, and there wasn't any pediatric rheumatologist around. So unfortunately, um, all of these kids were either misdiagnosed or slow to be diagnosed or treated properly and, uh, you know, significantly impacting their lives. So with that, you know, burning need along with just my interest in studying multiple organ systems and a growing research field in rheumatology, uh, this gravitated me towards pursuing a fellowship in pediatric rheumatology. And so I recently completed that, as you mentioned, at Sick Kids, uh, which I'm very grateful for. And uh, during my fellowship, I learned so much from, you know, these brilliant and dedicated mentors. And um, I found that lupus was one of the more challenging diseases. And so I decided to kind of pursue further training with the support of Lupus Ontario through the Jeff Carr Fellowship Award. And so I'm currently a lupus fellow at Sick Kids which is, you know, from trying to learn the best practices in, in diagnosing and treating children with lupus. Excellent. And uh, when it comes to kind of your day-to-day, if you could give our listeners a glimpse of what life as a pediatric rheumatologist is like, what would that day look like for you on an average day? For sure. So uh, for a typical day for a pediatric rheumatologist and for anyone really interested in, in pursuing this as a career later on, um, and so uh, really, we spend a lot of our time in the clinics uh, seeing out patients, both new referrals as well as, you know, since it is a chronic disease, we follow patients over time. Uh, so starting from infancy up till they're 18, and that's when they're ready to transition to adult clinics. Um, and when we're not in clinics, we're covering something called an inpatient service. So this is where we admit the very sick patients who are flaring um, and and we're even asked to perform consults when, uh, you know, they ask us questions of, you know, does this patient have rheumatic disease? And so uh, apart from that, we also uh, perform joint steroid injections. So that's when we inject steroids into joints. But luckily with the, you know, with the systemic therapy right now that we have, we haven't been doing a lot of uh, joint injections. And it's and apart from that as well, you know, we have devoted time for research and even in administrative roles and education. So it's a lot of balance of different things, a lot of fun things, um, and also seeing patients. Seems very dynamic. Yeah, when it, <laughs> sure. when it comes to rheumatology, of course, there's more than just lupus. 
there's a number of areas and illnesses that might present on any given day. What are some of the different kinds of illnesses uh, that you might be involved in diagnosing and treating? And I'm assuming lupus patients don't necessarily make up the majority of your clinical time? So uh, for me specifically, because I'm a lupus fellow, they do actually make up the majority of my time, but I'll give a glimpse of what are the types of patients that pediatric rheumatologists in general see. So we specialize in treating autoimmune diseases or, you know, this is when um, the way I explain it to, to, to patients and families, that's, you know, sometimes we have this immune system that fights off infections, but sometimes it gets confused. And um, that's when it starts to uh, make these antibodies and proteins and starts to attack kind of, you know, our own organs. And it's kind of like an internal war uh, with, with uh, ourselves. And so in that, um, and when that happens, different symptoms come up and, you know, have inflammation affecting the different organs, whether it's the joints, the kidneys, or even inflammation in the brain. And so when we say we deal with these systemic autoimmune diseases, it could mean lupus or even inflammation in blood vessels like vasculitis or even in joints. So that's when we say juvenile idiopathic arthritis. And apart from that, we actually have a separate category, something called auto-inflammatory diseases. And so uh, what that means is that, um, you know, I already mentioned immune system, there are different parts to it. And so there's a innate immune system, which is something that we're born with. Then there's the adaptive immune system. That's something that we acquire over time. And so with auto-inflammatory conditions um, in rheumatology, those are the conditions that um, you know, there's a malfunction in the innate immune system. And so we hear about these recurrent fever syndromes. And so uh, we also deal with periodic fever syndromes as well. Uh, so it's a wide range of diseases, char- mostly characterized by inflammation. But as you mentioned, you know, I'm so I'm, as a lupus fellow, I do deal with lupus patients, uh, you know, the majority of my clinic time. Uh, so yeah. When it comes to those lupus patients, especially in the pediatric setting, what would the typical age range be of those patients presenting um, who might have lupus? Is it more really infants or five to 10 or, or teens in terms of age range? No, that's a great, great question, uh, Brent. So, so up to 20% of lupus actually presents in childhood. And so in Canada specifically, one in 10,000 people has lupus as a child. And so and that's why we went. So when lupus starts in childhood, we call it childhood onset systemic lupus erythematosus or, or childhood onset lupus. And about 80% of them are female. But interestingly, the younger, so if you look under 10 years old, the younger the children, um, the ratio of female to male uh, becomes a little bit smaller. So three to one or two to one. Um, and meaning that there are many more young boys in the proportion initially, but as they get older, past puberty, it's much more female uh, than, than male. And that kind of speaks to the point of perhaps there's a hormonal component, right, to this. And it's not just a coincidence that there are more females to male. Um, and so if you look at the pediatric clinics in Canada, the average age of onset for lupus ranges between 12 and a half to 13 years of age. Um, and so it's, so, you know, when we say, uh, when you mentioned the, the newborns are five years of age, that's typically rare. It's rare to develop lupus before age of five years. So the age odds is typically 12 and a half to 13. And not only that, there's certain ethnic groups which uh, lupus does have, uh, tend to have a higher frequency in, and we see them more in Asian populations. So that includes East Asian and South Asian, as well as Black and Latino uh, Hispanics, as well as Indigenous populations. 
goods. So um, it's interesting that we, we also see that as well. Really fascinating that the ratio of female to male being diagnosed is so much closer uh, during younger years than it is older. That's I had no idea. That's quite fascinating. No, for sure. And again, uh, we can talk a little bit about that. And often parents ask me, so why do some people get lupus and why others don't? And really, we don't have that answer to that question, but we have uh, some of the pieces, especially you know, with research now, we're trying to learn more and more. And we know that it's a combination of things. It's, it's usually genetic, you know, something in the genetic makeup, as well as another component. So whether it's environmental exposures, uh, such as the sun or the pollution, or even the hormones, as I mentioned, right? And all of this is uh, given with that combination, it sets off something. And that's when, you know, lupus uh, develops. But hopefully over time, we can really pinpoint that cause with research. When an infant or someone who falls in the pediatric care uh, bracket presents to you with lupus, what's that diagnostic journey like for someone who can be so young? Is it similar to older patients in terms of blood work that gets done in order to kind of rule out other things and potentially rule in lupus? Or how does that kind of unfold for a younger patient? Oftentimes, I think it's important to mention a little bit about how lupus presents in, in childhood and how do they end up in our clinic or how do they end up getting referred? So I'm sure you've heard of the expression lupus is a disease of a thousand faces, right? right. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners have heard of this um, because really if you line up a thousand people who have lupus, it can look like a thousand different diseases because everyone, everyone it, present, it can present differently. It's such a heterogeneous disease. And so because of that, you know, because lupus can affect different organs, some of which we can see, right? So if a patient comes with rash, which is, you know, the butterfly rash that people hear about, um, it's a little bit easier to think of that. But then sometimes you have the organs that we can't see, such as the brain and the lungs um, and the gut, or even the, the blood issues, right? Uh, so all of that uh, is important to think about. So, and, and, and frankly, the more symptoms the patient has, it does make our job a little bit easier to think of lupus because, you know, there are these different symptoms uh, coming together. And then when it, just going back to your question of what is the diagnostic journey like? And so, yes, initially there, you know, there are some blood tests involved that we, we'd like to do because when we come to make that diagnosis, uh, we usually think of, you know, the combination of things. So it's the history, the story that the patient tells us, and also the blood work that we check for these certain antibodies that I had mentioned previously, and then also the exam. So what we find on exam, on physical exam. So with that all together, we try to make the diagnosis of lupus. And in terms of, is it similar to older patients or, or adults? I think it's the same disease. It's a continuum of disease, but uh, some things are very different in children than in, in adults. And, and really, they say that children are not little adults, right? So it's a, it's a common expression. So usually, you know, when um, in terms of just thinking again of, of the types of presentations, Dr. Deborah Levy, who's a pediatric rheumatologist, um, as well as a lupologist at SickKids, her team looked at the clinical features based on the SickKids cohort or the, you know, the SickKids study that uh, was performed, and they found that um, you can put um, put you know these patients into three different clusters of diseases or presentations. So they can either present as uh, mild or moderate or severe. 
And so a third of the patients fell into the severe, severe cluster, which meant that they came in with kidney inflammation as well as the blood issues. So that affects the platelets, the white blood cells, so the different counts that we check for, the joints, as well as the, the facial rash or other types of rashes. So they really ticked off pretty much a lot of the different organ systems. And then the, you have the moderate group. And those are the people who didn't have the kidney disease, but had the blood manifestations or the joint issues and the rashes. And lastly, you had a quarter of the patients who fell in the milder group, which, you know, had only the joint issues and the rashes. And, and it, you know, it, we say it's mild because it's easier to manage, right? It's easier to manage compared to the kidney disease piece. So yeah, so that's kind of, you know, it could present in different ways, but we usually, you know, put them in these categories, which is a mild, moderate to severe. As you mentioned, lupus can kind of be this great masquerader that is always different uh, and is not necessarily consistent from patient to patient. When you're dealing with such a young cohort too, I can imagine that that can add new dynamics and new challenges if if a child is quite young maybe they can't quite explain where it hurts or or what the problem is and i would imagine that adds another wrinkle on top of an already complex disease as well for sure and um you know it is challenging sometimes uh as you mentioned you know lupus can be a great mimicker um you know it shares features with all of you know other different diseases and because of the different symptoms, and often these symptoms are not specific, right? So if a child comes with fever or fatigue or weight loss or joint pain, um, so it's really different, you know, some of these symptoms could be nonspecific. We do have something called a classification criteria. You might've heard of this as well, that, you know, the purpose of these criteria, it, it fits, it's more so for research studies, but we do use it with caution and with our own clinical judgment. And it helps us, it guides us in, in looking for the different pieces of information that we need. And again, we're looking at the patient in front of us, as well as the, the blood work and the, and the exam. And all together, uh, we come to make this, to make the diagnosis. I know too that at least for uh, more mature patients with lupus and adults, it can take quite a while to get that diagnosis. It can take potentially years in, in some cases to get a, an official lupus diagnosis. Does that time frame become faster for infants and pediatric lupus in terms of getting a diagnosis? Yeah, and, I, and again, because it presents so differently you know, across the different uh, patients, it, it, it could be different for every patient. But I think um, in general, you know, when we have these symptoms and we and, and when you know the blood work or the antibodies are checked for and they're properly referred and you know in the community i think um there's a lot of great pediatricians out there who've become aware of this and especially with the help of this podcast and really different ways of increasing the awareness of lupus i think a lot of more people are thinking about it and so we we they get referred to us and i think in general once we have that clinical suspicion i think we you know we we make that diagnosis uh, really initially. And, and sometimes they don't really present again with a full-blown lupus picture. So there might be a few features here and there, but we tend to follow them over time in clinic because things can evolve and, and they may not, right? But we at least we, we monitor them, monitor and kind of check in every now and then in clinic and, um, and see how, how they evolve. 
a lot of the time people have this kind of preconceived notion that typically the earlier an illness is detected, the better the outcome or prognosis might be. Does that thinking hold true for people diagnosed with lupus at a younger age as well? Again, another great question and a common question. In fact, so the short answer is no. Um, there are another four reasons to that. So, you know, when we know from studies in Canada and in the US and around the world, the children who present uh, with lupus uh, have more severe disease at onset on the whole compared to adults um, who present with lupus, specifically because of the major organ manifestations, so the kidney disease and the brain disease. And so, so if you want to think, so that's one main reason, so which is the great, greater disease severity at onset, which makes it a little bit more difficult. Uh, number two is sometimes, you know, with kids, they have damage early on. And so what damage is, you know, are things that can be reversed. So if you have cataracts, for instance, you can't remove the eye, right? We can't make things go away. We need to treat them. And so our main goal is, you know, to control that disease early on, as well as prevent that long-term damage. And so uh, apart from the damage and the severity of the disease at onset, you know, number three is that children are growing, right? And so you have all these issues with growth, puberty, and um, affecting even the height for a lot of these kids. So if you want to, you know, and that's why we're trying to be mindful of the treatments that we use, like steroids and different things that can affect the bone health. But um, you know, if you have a child who develops lupus at the age of eight, let's say, and hopefully has another 90 years to live, uh, which is a long time, right, uh, to have lupus uh, all throughout from eight to 90. And so in 2022, we don't have a cure, but we may talk differently in about 10 to 20 years, um, you know, but again, our goal is to control the disease. But 90 years of disease is much different than someone who develops lupus at the age of 40 or 50. Again, so just to emphasize the point that um, while it strikes at a young age, you know, they, they hold or they carry this disease with them longer. And, um, and it, again, because they're developing and maturing, it can also, it strikes the brain at a vulnerable stage, right? When the brain is under construction and trying to mature and develop. Um, and the last reason I really want to emphasize as to why it's, it's uh, you know, I think uh, more severe is that, you know, you have all the psychosocial issues, right? It's enough being a teenager, like, you know, waking up to school every day and dealing with friends. And now imagine we tell them now you have to take multiple medicines per day and you have multiple doctor visits and hospital visits. And so it's really hard for them to go through that. And I think and sometimes, again, when you tell them you can't really go out in the sun, you have to be careful because the sun, as you know, and lupus, it can cause a flare and cause a rash. So it can affect the quality of their life. Um, and nobody wants to take these medicines, right? And that's why adherence, medication adherence becomes an issue. And, and we try to be very open with our patients and um, talk about how much they're missing, how much they're taking, so we can, we can know. So those are kind of the four major reasons as to why, you know, uh, I think in general, um, it does you know, present as a more severe uh, disease. One of those points in particular really resonated with me, and it's a really good point that you make. And it's, disease over time can really take a toll on someone, as can the medications prescribed in order to treat that disease. So just because you catch something a little earlier, it doesn't mean, number one, that it's solved, as you point out, which means you're living with the symptoms and the condition as you, as you 
in your in your example pointed out for 90 years potentially which is going to take a toll on you compared to somebody who lives it lives with it for much less time and also deals with you know the accumulation of different medications through that same period of time so that's a really interesting uh, point that you make and i think it's a, a great perspective as well for for people to hear who may not think of it that way right and and um i mean on the bright side again our, our goal is to try to prevent that long-term damage and i think by detecting this early on, we have that opportunity, right? To control the disease or prevent the damage. But again, I think we are presented with a challenging task. You know, as, as you've mentioned, receiving a lupus diagnosis, it, it can be a bit of a surprise to some people. It can be a shock to people uh, and to their families. And I would imagine this holds particularly true if you're the parent of a child or, or a young adult who's being diagnosed with lupus. And so I was wondering, do you have any advice for parents or guardians of children who have been diagnosed with lupus or might be going through that journey now? For sure. So a lot of this advice I'm about to give, I think, uh, well, one, I want to thank my my staff, uh, you know, my pediatric rheumatologist that I work with, um, as well as Holly, the nurse, uh, you know, our lupus clinic nurse uh, that really runs the show. And then also the parents that I've talked to and, um, and got some of this advice off from. And so I think that, you know, a couple of things. One, I think is, you know, just stressing that our goal for the therapy is to control the disease really so that patients and families can continue to pursue their activities and interests. Like we want kids to return to school, and, you know, do the sports and have their friends. And so, you know, while they're going back to these routines, it might just look a little bit different right? Uh, but the disease doesn't have to define the person, doesn't have to define their life. And so uh, part of that, I think, is um, learning to accept the disease. And um, I think uh, this requires a lot of education and trying to understand the disease and that there are going to be ups and downs and emphasizing the shared decision making, you know, between the parents and the ch uh, child, as well as uh, the doctors and, and the parents as well. And so that's, I think the number one thing is, again, that not, um, you know, accepting it and also uh, not, you know, having that to define the person. The second is, I would say, the mindset, uh, which uh, Holly, again, with the lupus clinic nurse has taught me that, you know, we always try to share with parents early on that lupus is a chronic disease. So, you know, it's not something that you just treat and go away. Um, and so the mindset needs to be that this is the new normal. Okay, and so many of the changes to get healthy or stay healthy need to be treated like any other daily routine and not made special necessary, right? And so we use the example that um, if you have a, you know, no two-year-old essentially likes to brush their teeth. Uh, however, we, we do not negotiate about brushing their teeth early on. And so it's an expectation. Eventually it becomes part of their routine, right? And with enough boundaries, it integrates into their life. And so I think what parents need to do is just keep on, you know, keep on parenting and not have different expectations necessarily just because your child has lupus and really just, yeah, continue with that. The third piece of advice I have for parents, I would say, is, is recognizing and validating what their kids are feeling. So just telling them you have every right to feel anxious about this. You have every right to feel angry. It's okay to feel this way. It's okay to feel down or upset or not, you know, not wanting to go to an appointment because a lot of these times, you know, they're trying to be strong and they're trying to, you know, not miss school or feel overwhelmed. And so it's important that we encourage, you know, for them to talk about these emotions and not suppress these feelings. Um, it's important to validate them and just let it, letting them know that, that they'll, 
be there for them. And, you know, they're going to go through this together. They're going to support them when they can themselves, right? So I think that's really important. The fourth tip I, again, um, give to parents is on how do you manage and cope with a diagnosis? And I think one of the key things we tell is the, the parents is that encouraging the kids doing what they love, the hobbies, right? Even before or after appointments or have something else other than the doctor's visit. So even if it means, you know, grabbing dinner on the way back, you know, to avoid the, the traffic or going shopping in a store nearby. It's kind of like a, a treater just trying to spend that quality of time with the kids, not surrounded necessarily by around the hospitals and the doctor appointments. And I think the, the fifth point I want to give is that how do you deal with, you know, the pushback to, to take the meds, right? Because a lot of the kids, I think, with the younger ones, it's, it's a little bit easier because, you know, they can't really choose whether or not they want to take the meds. But I think with older teens who, you know, tend to you know, be able to choose them, they need to understand the potential consequences of, you know, what, what would happen if they don't. And I think for when we deal with those situations, we're lucky that we have different teams to help us, such as a social worker, the psychologist, as well as the adolescent medicine team. So that helps us really manage and help parents to handle that and uh, help with teens to, to cope with their illness. And so, again, this is stresses a point of uh, medication adherence or compliance, right? And so we, while we try to minimize the me medications, we try to have an open conversation and try to be honest and like, what are you actually taking? You know, what, what are you taking? What are you not? Because at the end of the day, you know, it's, you know, it's important for us to know uh, whether, you know, to know whether our medicines are working or not. And I think, you know, knowing how much they're taking is, is extremely important. So I think all of, yeah, so all of those uh, little tips and advice from my end. And I think lastly is just uh, parents self-care. I think just remembering to, for parents to take, some time for themselves, you know, sit five minutes, just grab that coffee and on the couch and just complete silence. Hopefully if you're able to secure that, lean on friends and family and support because you want to make sure that you don't run out of, out of steam, right? You, know, you want to be careful mm -hmm. so that you are able to care for your child. So yeah, it's a lot of different tips and advice, but I wanted to stress those points. It's a lot of advice, but it's a lot of really good and thorough advice. And I feel like it's something that a lot of people can really draw from uh, and, and use as tips and even tricks in some cases in order to, to try to ensure that um, their child is on the right track with their meds and, and that they're looking out for themselves as well and, and trying to keep life, I suppose, as normal within the new normal, as you say, as it can be. Uh, another thing that I wanted to touch on as well is your work goes above and beyond dealing with just patients. You've done quite a bit of research, so I want to spend some time talking about that. In particular, I found a term that I found interesting, and I was hoping you could perhaps explain it a little bit. Can you talk a bit about neuropsychiatric lupus? Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that this might be a new or perhaps an underused term for some people listening right now. Uh, most people may know this simply by perhaps a singular symptom such as brain fog. So what is neuropsychiatric lupus and what is the impact it can have on patients and why is it important to research? Again, another great question. So there are a lot of different ways that lupus can actually affect the brain. And so um, unfortunately, it's not a singular symptom. There's a lot of different uh, ways it can manifest. And that's what makes it actually one of the more challenging fields in lupus um, and you know trying to learn understand this brain inflammation and so we we tend to say that 
you know, neuropsychiatric inclusivity is still in the gray zone area. And, and the reason why um, it's still in the gray zone area is that we don't have good reliable tests to tell that we have brain inflammation. And so we don't have those specific biomarkers in the blood work or specific imaging that we can say, oh yeah, we, this is, you know, brain inflammation related to lupus. So we might have a patient, you know, come in different ways when it comes to neurosecular lupus, as I mentioned, there comes in different manifestations. So a patient can come with, uh, with psychosis, you know, so, you know, hallucinating, hearing things that are not there, seeing things that are not there, or it could be as subtle as, you know, the patient telling us, uh, well, I'm having trouble remembering things, or I'm having trouble figuring out the right words, or I'm sitting there in class, but I feel like I'm zoning out the entire time. And I just don't understand why, you know, my grades were so, so good in the, you know, in the start of the year, but now all of a sudden I'm noticing that I'm putting 10 times the effort. And so all of these different ways, and even sometimes it can come as, come up as movement disorders or strokes or seizures in the more extreme end. And so with that, unfortunately, you know, you, you have a patient come in with all these symptoms, yet the blood tests and the imaging, and even sometimes we do uh, something called a lumbar puncture, where we take some of that fluid um, that's floating around in the brain. So despite all of these tests, they come up as normal. And so how do we figure this out? How do we tell that someone has uh, neuropsychiatric lupus or brain inflammation? And so we need to have a really good team, a team of neurologists, psychologists, as well as, you know, pediatric rheumatologists and psychiatrists that work together and try to use objective measures and try to pinpoint you know, how we could treat this and how we could uh, diagnose this. And so we haven't found a great way to diagnose it yet or treat it, but I think we're on the horizon, hopefully. And so, so yeah, so those are kind of the different manifestations and um, what I mean by, by neuropsychiatric lupus. I use the term brain fog. And so brain fog is, you know, what we lump under, under something called cognitive dysfunction or cognitive impairment. And so this affects different domains. Um, and so I'd mentioned that a little bit about, you know, a kid coming in, trouble remembering things or finding the right words or feeling that they're zoning out. And so the different cognitive domains that can be affected in neurocircadic lupus could be executive functioning or visual spatial learning or working memory. And so the, all, all of these different things, or even the speed to respond or to respond to something. And so there are different tests, even measures to kind of, uh, we call neurobattery tests that measures these cognitive domains and trying to see what of these domains are affected. And so a little bit about my research, so how this kind of ties back to my research, Dr. Knight, um, Andrew Knight is a pediatric rheumatologist, also a lupologist. Uh, she's my research uh, advisor and her clinical research uh, focuses in examining the brain function and development and mental health. And so our current research tries to, you know, help us better understand the impact of cognitive impairment or this brain fog in children. And we want to try to learn about what are the different cognitive domains that are impacted and how do children do over time. And so we study the relationship between the cognitive function, so this cognitive piece, with all the different factors like you know, how is it tied to sleep? How is it related to pain? How is it related to quality of life? How is it related to having, you know, emotional or mood issues like depression and anxiety? Um, how does it tie to the disease itself? Um, and so, because again, there's a lot of different factors that contribute to brain inflammation. You know, one is the 
the, the disease itself. So lupus in itself can result into that. There's also the medications we use. Um, there is, you know, the fact that the brain is still maturing and developing. Um, there's the emotional, the mental, you know, the mood issues that can also impact the brain. So there's a lot of different factors here that we're dealing with. And so hopefully with this research study, you know, we hope to develop uh, strategies to diagnose this early on and target it with interventions um, to help improve quality of life and, and their overall outcomes uh, long term. That is really fascinating. <laughs> so there's, there's obviously a lot going on just in that area of research for you. Uh, mm -hmm. I know that you're also doing some additional research. Uh, can you walk us through your research on screening for anxiety and depression and the kinds of health interventions or findings you're hoping to develop as a result of that research? Is it also tied a little bit to uh, the neuropsychiatric lupus as well? For sure. So one of the contributing factors, uh, again, for neurosyphratic lupus is mood issues. And so uh, that is, you know, tied to anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And so mental health is something that's really, you know, or emotional health problems are quite prevalent in children and, and uh, adolescents with lupus. In fact, you know, when you look at studies and looking at prevalence, you know, about 20 to 60 percent of patients have depression symptoms, you know, or 20 to 40% have anxiety and up to 14% even have suicidal thoughts. So, you know, that's a lot. That's a lot of mental health burden, I think. And especially now with the pandemic, we've been seeing more of, more, more of that, um, mm -hmm. uh, understandably, because this is such a difficult time for a lot of kids and parents even. So um, identifying these symptoms for us is really important early on because, we know that these symptoms are associated with poor clinical outcomes. So, you know, obviously if someone's feeling down, they're not going to be taking their meds as, as often. And so it affects medication adherence. It affects uh, transition. So when they're, turning, when they're turning 18 and going to adult clinics, that process doesn't become smooth as well. And, and it affects their quality of life in general. And so um, for these reasons, I think I, what I wanted to do with this project, and it's a quality improvement project, is to try to improve the rates of routine screening for depression and anxiety in our clinics, our day-to-day -day clinics. And so uh, we have these uh, screening tools that we use. So those are questions that patients you know, can sit down, take five to 10 minutes and answer those questions. And based on that, we calculate a score and uh, we go down a, an algorithm, which uh, helps us kind of guide us what to do next in terms of you know, referring to adolescent medicine or a psychiatrist or different, you know, mental health services that can help. And, and really the point of this is to capture that mental health burden early on so that we can get the appropriate resources for our patients or appropriate interventions. And that could mean as simple as psychotherapy, a little bit of, you know, cognitive behavioral ther therapy, CBT, you know, people have been uh, hearing about that to, uh, to some, sometimes some kids may require a bit of medicines, right? So I think it's, um, it's a lot of different options and, uh, and it's just trying to get them, you know, getting them the right resources early on. Um, that sums up about the, that piece. It's a really important area to research and to continue to develop treatments for and resources for patients who might have uh, issues arising, whether it be from lupus or, or any other instance where they might be able to take advantage of the findings of the research in order to improve their lives and, and, and treatments for any such illnesses and circumstances. 
As we wrap up the conversation, I wanted to end it on a little bit of a lighter note. And I was wondering if you might be able to share what some of your hobbies are kind of outside of your clinical practice and what you do to kind of unwind from your clinical day. Sure. So, um, so when I'm not in clinics, a lot of people know this actually, that I'm quite uh, an avid baker. I love to bake. And, um, and again, it just stresses the importance of just having that outlet for, for really anyone. And so I do bake a lot of different things like cookies and brownies. So, um, you know, pre-COVID, I used to bring a lot of desserts in clinic. Uh, now I know we have to be a little bit more uh, cautious, but uh, hopefully my dream one day is actually to sign up to, to the great, great Canadian baking show and uh, hopefully go and show up on the, on the series if I apply for the season when I can, because <laughs> I am a little bit busy right now. But uh, that's kind of my, uh, my, one of my goals is to apply for that. And other than baking, I actually love to, um, I love music. So I like to play on the piano and uh, do a little bit of singing. So again, music, I think is really important. And um, I, I stress that to a lot of parents and, and patients uh, about music therapy and uh, art therapy and just all of that. So any type of uh, outlet, again, it's really important to help uh, open and manage with uh, the stressors of life in general. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I wish you luck with uh, the Canadian uh, Bake Off show and, and uh, you know, everything just in general. You certainly have your hands full. There's a lot going on, especially these days, as you mentioned, with the pandemic. Uh, so I, I'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your certainly very busy schedule to join us today to, to have this conversation. And thank your team as well. I, I'm sure everybody is doing a tremendous amount of overtime to, in order to look after everyone on the front line. And uh, I think... I can speak for a lot of people when I say thank you very much to, to everyone involved in that. So thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. And uh, we wish you the best. Thanks for having me. Once again, really had a good time. Please join us for our next episode where we speak with someone who experienced many of the neuropsychiatric symptoms of lupus that Dr. Altel spoke of today and how they manifested for him in the early stages of the illness. Also, if you're interested in learning more about Lupus Research, the Jeff Carr Fellowship, or would like to donate to either one of those initiatives, please visit our website at www.lupusontario.org or see the show notes for details on how you can donate.